golden handshakes. Rows between ministers and civil servants. Resignations. Rows between civil servants and ministers. And more golden handshakes. Charlie Parker's second job saga might spring to mind. But it's been very much rinse and repeat for government over more than a decade. It all comes down to accountability and governance. In other words, who's in charge and how are we keeping them in check? Someone who knows more about those themes than most is Senator Tracy Valois. She came into the State's Assembly in 2008. Four years later, she was leading a review about a half a million payments to a former chief executive. Sound familiar? She's held a multitude of positions throughout her 14 years in politics, both in the ministerial squad and as a backbench scrutineer. Her most recent government role was as education minister, which she left after two years. The resignation came at the end of a long line of concerns and frustrations, from having her budget slashed to simply being ignored by the team that was supposed to be working with her to drive a huge scheme of change, she said. And she's also been chair of the state's employment board, attempting to guide the panel of politicians that effectively act as employer for every one of the government's 7,000 workers through one of the biggest union disputes to date. So it's safe to say she's learnt a lot about how government works. Or doesn't. Attempting to channel her frustrations into something constructive, she recently teamed up with ministers past and present to figure out what needs to change. Among them, former Chief Minister Ian Gorst and ex-Children's Minister Sam Mezek. The result is a critical review that asks us, are personalities dominating in politics? Is the state's employment board dysfunctional? Do we need a cabinet office? Was the change to ministerial government the right thing to do? And does the CEO have too much power? She dug into the detail of that review for this week's Politics Disassembled podcast with me, Fiona Potney. Firstly, if you wouldn't mind, let's get the elephant out of the room. Will you be standing for election? No, I'm not standing for election. That was extremely decisive. <laughs> you able to tell us why? Or- well, I think it's almost 14 years of my life that I've given to being a states member. Um, I'm extremely honoured and thankful uh, to the public for giving me the opportunity to do the role. Um, but I think it's about time that um, I step down and let some fresh ideas, fresh points of view to come in and, and work with um, some interesting personalities and, and colleagues. For me, it's that long term. It was never a long term plan to be in politics. Um, actually, it was never a plan to be in politics at all. <laughs> so for me, it's that it's time to step down and follow the path that I, I, I wanted to long time ago, um, and uh, get my feet on the ground with a career that I'm particularly interested in. 
Well, the reason I ask is that obviously this is a significant report that you've just published and, you know, someone's going to have to take these recommendations forward. Someone's going to have to push it all the way. I mean, among them is ensuring each department has its own kind of appropriate minister, creating a cabinet office, clarifying the role of the deputy chief minister, reforming the state's employment board. I'm going to run out of breath. <laughs> and it even leaves open the question of, uh, you know, maybe looking at committees again in future, um, all of which I'm sure we'll get into. But um, if we can start at the very beginning, um, in the foreword to your reports, you start by saying a system should never be designed to meet the needs of personalities, but should ensure best practice in governance, accountability, and demonstrate the ability to deliver on behalf of those it aims to serve. What did you mean by that? You specifically pick out personalities there. Was that based on any particular experiences or situations that have arisen over the years? Machinery government, the ministerial government system that we have is in its infancy still. We've only had it for 16 and a bit years. And I came in literally after the first term of ministerial government. And I think it's, it's fair to say that it was brought in in terms of a skeletal form and so over the, over the time, we've kind of looked at it and said, how can we put the meat on the bones? What can that look like and what does that mean? Um, with politics, I think there's always an element of personality. Um, but I think we also have to remember it's about being professional and being respectful to each other, but to the outer world. Um, um, <clears throat> so like I said in the foreword, it, it's very much... No system is ever going to fix any personality issues that's for people to kind of sit back and look in the mirror and say did I do this the right way could I utilize the toolkit that's in my box whether that's in the legislation or in the policy to do this a different way do this a better way and we've got to remember politicians have an awful lot of power when it comes to the state assembly or as a minister to be able to amend legislation to be able to change policy and so they've got to give themselves a self-check every now and then and say is this right would the public see this is the right thing to do and that kind of goes back to the point about Nolan principles and having those values around self-interest and you know the whole kind of honesty um, leadership all those types of things which are really important and I, I just think sometimes because we live in a small community and some people can work in a echo chamber that not taking into account other people's points of views or going down one particular route in their mind is not necessarily the right way. And, and you've got to kind of open yourself up to understanding this isn't one person's drive. But that's where um, government and the wider, wider civil service come in, right? You know, everyone's meant to keep each other in check, both the ministers and the civil servants kind of working in harmony. Is that the experience that you've uh, seen in government over the years? There's been ebbs and flows of it. To be, I, I think some of the issues lie around the fact that politicians aren't technically employed. They're seen as self-employed. So the, the kind of check and balance with politicians comes with the likes of Privileges and Procedures Committee or within the Ministerial Code of Conduct. And that's really for like the chief ministers determine whether ministers are uh, holding up the values and and the Nolan principles and those types of things the other side of the coin is of course you've got employed officers and uh, senior officers and those senior officers work directly with politicians and and sometimes it 
it's not easy you won't always agree and and that's normal course that's you know and that's been your experience as education minister yeah I, I think it's fair to say that I was pretty clear about where I wanted to go and what I wanted to achieve and I I knew I just felt that there was a lot of bureaucracy that was put around that in order to delay rather than do that's where it gets extremely frustrating I mean to be fair to officers they've got a lot of rules that they have to kind of abide by um, particularly with regards to the public finances law and and I utterly and totally respect that but there is a position where ministers have an ability to do things like letters of instruction where they're willing not to listen to the advice of, of the officer directly and they take a completely different route. I think we're still growing as as a system, as a government. Um, before we were more of a consensus committee system. I was I had never experienced that system, so I can't say whether it was good or bad. But then we moved into what some would refer to as more of an adversarial type of ministerial government, and it's uh, it c- can easily turn into a them and us. This goes back to the personalities thing. If you've got the right personalities that recognise the importance of having a critical friend um, and the importance of being able to get on and, and do things rather than talk about things or review things all the time, actually working in collaboration with each other can create some really good policies But we have to remember we're all human and we all make mistakes, whether you're an officer, whether you're a politician, um, and there can be things that go wrong. Um, And that's when we hold our hands up and go, right, you know, it's it's not great. Um, But sometimes then you have to look at, like we've done with this report and say, in hindsight, if if we look at the last four years, like we've done with this report, um, what could we have done better? And is it us as people or is it the system? And if it's the system... What do we need to change to try and help and improve that system? Some of those changes surely have to be cultural. Um, you know, when we're talking about personalities, I mean, both within the state's assembly, ministers and the government. And if we're talking about government specifically, surely it's for either the SCB or the CEO to set that. I mean, how, how should they be dealing with this obviously there are issues that need to be resolved we've seen culture change regimes put in place we've seen the attempt at one gov that's kind of filtering down to us now and and is pretty much fully in place has that been conducive to providing a a better way of working together at all um i think it's still early days um i think that's probably the most diplomatic way to um put it but i mean culture is very much down to leadership and the values that that you put out right at the beginning and the vision and expectation that you have in order to achieve what you want to during that term as a politician you know like i've stated we've stated in the report our nolan principles are old um you know there's stuff in there that's outdated it's not very clear Um, If you look at the likes of, for example, I mean, the easiest way to look at Westminster, they regularly review their Nolan principles and update them. And we've now got from the civil service side, from state's employment board, a a people strategy, which was a recommendation of um, the Comptroller and Lords General many moons ago. But we now have a people strategy and they lay out values in there, which are predominantly based on Nolan principles, updated not, but actually they go further. And so you've got to ask the question, politicians are supposed to be in charge they're they're 
they're elected by the people to drive policy and legislation and, and deliver for the, on behalf of the public. So therefore, we need to match or be better than those values and set those expectations, but also live and breathe them. And that's where the culture comes in. So it doesn't matter what kind of system that you put in place, if the people aren't going to live and breathe those values and the expectations that I think the, the public do have high expectations, and rightly so, they have high expectations of their public service um but just basic things like transparency being true to your word um you know uh, leadership well on that topic of leadership if we might reflect on the role of the person right at the top the ceo i mean one of the things in your report um notes that the uh, consideration should be given to the role of the chief executive and whether there are too many powers invested in only one individual can you explain what you mean by that i mean break that down a bit you know ministers are supposed to be in charge so how how is the chief executive potentially (laughs) too powerful Yeah, okay, so uh, predominantly this report came out of what happened um, with P1 2018. Um, A lot of people blame that particular proposition, but there have been a number of changes over the years that, you know, to be fair, we've kind of said, well, actually, we could have done better with this. But it may not have worked, but we just haven't changed it. Um, But one of the significant things that came out of uh, P1 was creating the principal accountable officer. And anybody that's worked in the States or been a politician knows that that money is literally power when it comes to being able to deliver things. The role that the chief executive officer plays is they are, there's a number of roles and they're powerful roles is the chief executive officer is the chief executive officer to the councillor ministers. They're also the head of the public service. They're also the principal accountable officer. But then they're also technically the advisor to state's employment board. Doesn't quite say that in the legislation, but that's the presumption that is made. So there are a number of really, you know, and rightly so, a CEO's um, got to have some form of power in order to make sure delivery happens in the public sector. But then there is the question about how that power creates appropriate impartiality when it comes to things like policy and legislative advice to politicians um it also which is really important is where is the accountability where does that accountability lie and who's responsible for holding that individual to account and who is well it's (laughs) it's interesting if you read i mean one of the big issues with what we did with the principal accountable officer was yes we had p1 but it had a few safeguards around it when P1 was created. Then what happened was the public finances law was brought in in 2019, which removed some of those safeguards. And I think I made it quite clear in the state's assembly at the time why members should not support it at that particular time. Because quite rightly in the report of P1, it referred to two other pieces of very significant legislation, which I would argue are kind of the, alongside the public finance law, are the foundations of our governance and accounting in the way the framework for public service works and, and politics works. Uh, that's the States of Jersey law and the employment of the States of Jersey employees law. So really, I, I will refer to it as the HR law because it's such a mouthful. Um, <laughs> and, and the States of Jersey law is kind of what governs going on in the State's Assembly and the role of ministers and the role of scrutiny and those types of things and standing orders falls out of that. So together they fit, and that's how our island functions. That's that's your kind of governance accountability framework. And so when you're looking at it and you're saying, well... Who, who's responsible to who? It's quite clear when you look at the public finances law, the accountable officers that have been delegated by the principal accountable officer are accountable to 
the PAO, the Principal Accountable Officer, who is also the Chief Executive Officer, who is also the head of the public service. And, okay, that that's clear. Um, but then try to find anywhere in those pieces of legislation who the CEO is accountable to. There is an assumption or presumption that they are accountable to the Chief Minister. I'm not being funny, but the Chief Minister is one individual. And whoever that individual is, so I'm not going to make this about personalities, but whoever that individual is, you've only got so many hours in the day. Um, you've only got so many things that you can do in one go um, we're all human so we're not Superman we're not Spider-Man we're not you know those those um, heroes that can you know fire things out I sometimes wish that we were but reality is that we are humans and so anybody in that chief minister role over the years where things haven't particularly fitted in certain departments it kind of got chucked in the chief minister's department but with the big change in the one gov structure so complete changes to government departments that removed kind of the head minister of those departments. And the chief minister actually doesn't have a department anymore. So we used to have the chief minister's department, but we now have an office of the chief executive and a chief operating office. And we have something called P. And you know what? I always forget one of these P's, but strategic <laughs> policy planning performance, I think. It, I think you're uh, right on that. <laughs> is the way that it works. Um, and a ministerial support unit now. And the question is, when you're looking at those functions and you're saying, well, where are the lines of accountability? and How does that fit and what does that mean? Um, and it's not clear. And so one of the really clear pieces of feedback we got on this was, ministers, there needs to be a line of accountability to ministers. Um, and that was from officers themselves. Um, the ones that we did get to speak to, um, and that was from members of the public, and they want to see that direct line of accountability. And so that's that one of the problems with the OneGov reform, right? So, I mean, you ended up, just as a side note, you know, like GHE, a super department, or rather, no, IHE now, so Infrastructure Housing Environment. So you've got a load of ministers all looking at this one department. I mean, how does that work? Yeah, and, and, and there's potential conflicts with that so when you've got such a big department but that's not just delivering but also regulating at the same time there is an argument that there could be conflicts there you know you have one director general who's accountable to the chief executive officer but you've got what is it now three ministers that sit in that portfolio that that needs to be split that that you know just on the point of conflicts i think is is a valid argument but actually f to ensure the alignment of of accountability one of the problems that we have of course is i wouldn't call it a problem because i think with ministerial government we need I personally believe we need to have it is the Troy rule where government is in the minority and you only have so many ministers. In order to function a proper meeting, you can't have 22 ministers sitting around a table. But what you need to have is an ability for those ministers to have some form of power, delegated power to carry out functions whether that's for mental health so it go across two different departments or whether that's for um just trying to think of you know carbon neutral that goes across a lots of different departments so there are specific things that people are very passionate about that want they want them to get done and so when we talk about things like a cabinet office what we refer to in that is that you'd have like your your cabinet ministers so you'd have about eight cabinet ministers for example but you what you would try to do is have the head of each 
of those departments. So that would be your ministers with that direct line. And then all the other members of the executive would no longer be called assistant ministers. They would be ministers. And it would be down to the chief minister to determine whether what those ministers are particularly called and what um, allocation of powers they would have under particular pieces of legislation. So there would be that direct alignment again. And because you've got director generals, although in in charge of those departments, then you've got all those group directors that sit underneath that that could have alignment to those particular ministers. So then you've got that conjunction, that that clear line of accountability through to the political realm. And that's something we talk about in our report in terms of trying to fix a problem that is very much felt by many people and, and we believe that is the way to go without having to then pull apart the one gov structure that was brought into place with all those different departments and going back to that kind of chief minister chief minister's department economic development economic development department um you know uh, all those different regimes we had before because having to change the structure of the public service um is no mean feat um, I think this is the biggest change they've ever gone through and it's not been easy but it's also expensive so we need to be careful to make sure that we have some form of flexibility and ability to have that alignment and clarity around who is accountable for who and, and what for. Have you had the opportunity to float this idea with those in government like the new chief executive for example or other senior officers? I get slightly angry with myself that I've been a little bit I believe I've been a little bit too reasonable uh, with the time it's taken to produce this report and the reason why I say that is um, because I really wanted to engage and and, and make sure that we had um, enough voices to take forward some of these recommendations. Um, It was unfortunate that I only got to meet the councillor ministers I think it was the 15th of February so not long before the report well I think in the same week the report was published um and it was at that meeting that I first met the chief executive the new chief executive officer but we had met with the interim chief executive officer um on a couple of occasions and um we'd met with a variety of different officers I'm not going to name anyone in particular who have particular roles that are important to what we're talking about in in this report and I I it, it was disappointing that the council minister's didn't come forward at an earlier stage or we didn't get the opportunity to talk to them at an earlier stage and the state's employment board as well which is which was uh, upsetting we, we we spoke with you know senior officer with regards to hr but um, why did they not want to engage did they give a, a reason for well not taking part as much we we did have the vice chair of state's employment board on our subcommittee but if you look at the the times that people were coming to the meetings that we had you know um the the executive side were few and far between who came to the committee meetings which was disappointing because they've got that insight that experience as things are currently working and as things are currently changing as well i had the confidence of the vice chair who stated to me at the beginning of january we need to get a meeting in the book state's employment board and our officer who is absolutely amazing shout out to our officer by the way she's absolutely amazing when it comes to doing this work um and the actual meeting never took place there was constant chasing around trying to meet with state's employment board i i just got the feeling there was just an excuse after an excuse after an excuse and i ended up just having to put my foot down and saying well we're just going to publish it then um i'm sorry i can't keep holding on to this for any longer and what 
what worried me and concerned me was, you know, we, we spent a year taking in people's voices, people's experiences, putting this review out with all these recommendations, and this report would just end up sitting on a shelf somewhere, like I've seen so many other reports in history happen to, um, or it'd be cherry-picked which is another dangerous thing. We saw that with Clothia. Mm-hmm. We've seen it with other reports around machinery government. So um, it, it concerns me that we've only got till the 10th of March to bring anything forward. Yes, I, I, I'm angry with myself and I'm disappointed with myself that I didn't put my foot down earlier and maybe I was too reasonable. I think we've still got a very good report there and I think there is a way that we can take some of this forward if, um, we're, and we're trying to get that done as quickly as possible. Because our, um, our last lodging date's the 10th of March so, um, and other things that we'll have to kind of say, well, maybe we do it in principle or we hand it over to the next government. There are things in there that should just be happening on a day-to-day basis anyway, things like training and development, bits and pieces like that. There's really simple things to take away, like mm. the single legal entity that was brought in under P1. That's quite a simple reversal, and there's a few little changes that you can take in mm. change in terms of wording, which will help move some of these forward. Perhaps slightly more complex than that, um, one of the key recommendations is around really closely looking at the role of the SEB. I mean, obviously, this is the panel of politicians that are meant to act as employer of the many thousands of uh, public sector workers that we have on the island so it's a really crucial role what do you think needs changing I mean I'm sure there's there's plenty so I think it's it's fair to say that there are a number of people that believe the state's employment board is dysfunctional um, I think things have slightly improved over this term um we've we've lost so many hr directors over the years and um that's really disappointing because i think hr director is just as important as your treasurer um and i say that because without the people what are you actually going to be able to deliver in the public service and and money's important but actually the people that they're the most important and you need to be looking after them and making sure health and safety is correct and their well-being is up to par and you're investing and training and developing them and making them want to live and breathe and be part of the public service and and love being there states employment board in its current format which what was interesting during our review was there was some confusion around whether it was actually an executive body or whether it was a non-executive body and what I mean by that is whether it's actually within the councillor minister's kind of remit or whether actually it sits as kind of a what some people would refer to like a backbencher kind of body and um, it was made quite clear to us it's actually a non-executive body Um, under the law the chief minister is automatically recognised as the chair of the SEB so um, when when you look at it though, and and you look at the what I call the HR law, uh, it's easier to say than all those other <laughs> words. Um, it's it's not clear in terms of things like what what it should be reporting on for one. Um, all their annual reports are different, and actually, there's a legal requirement to report by the end of the first quarter. Um, every year so after three months at the end of year and so many times that that's been broken so many times that that hasn't happened you know uh, we didn't have a people strategy um, the way codes of conduct uh, do or do not work or whether they're kept up to date or not or um, another thing was of course um, the way that they interact with the unions Mm. Um, 
But one one of the big issues I think sitting there is when you're looking at who advises states employment board, the potential conflict and issues that might happen from an actual HR point of view when it comes to the chief executive officer and a HR director, and that going back to well, actually who holds the chief executive officer to account. And so this goes to our, our discussion around the cabinet office again. So you're kind of saying, well, actually, if you had a cabinet office, you could have an offspring of that cabinet office. It could still be a non-exec body, um, but the chief minister could appoint the people, so he wouldn't be directly involved. Uh, you just appoint the, the members of that SEB. could be two non-exec, two exec, and two advisors. Those advisors would have experience of non-exec boards and HR policy and things like that and would have a you know a, a term that would enable them to carry over things for states employment board so that you don't just have a brand new bunch of states members that come in and go oh what's going on here <laughs> I mean I think as as the public we're most um often aware of the state's employment board and its activities when there's a crisis situation you know when we've got a chief executive that's about to go or a a big payments being signed off something along those lines or a big dispute with the unions I mean is there a a sense that they ought to be more uh, less reactive I suppose to these kind of crisis events but also horizon scanning at the same time and looking at things like health and safety issues you know noticing if there are patterns in perhaps uh, things that are coming up in the royal court So I I think the most simple way that I could put it is the State's Employment Board's job is to create the policy and the legislation that governs and looks after our employees. Um, There's a a bunch of requirements in the HR law that that talks about the functions of the State's Employment Board. And, And what they should be doing is holding the Chief Executive Officer to account for delivering on those policies. So they should be able to turn around, as an example, let's take health and safety, because it's, it's a fairly simple one to refer to. Um, health and safety, they've got responsibility to make sure that we're up to scratch and our code of conduct and all those things um, are adhered to. Um, so if the SEB are getting served on a regular basis for health and safety issues, as an example, um, given notices or fines or whatever that might be, then they should be sitting down with the CEO and going, excuse me, Chief Executive Officer, we've got this many served notices, this is how much money we've had to fork out, um, why aren't we doing better? Why aren't we upholding this, this and this in the code? Or why aren't we doing A, B, C and D? Whatever that might be. Um, and making sure it gets done. And that's where accountability... We're not talking about blame game here. We're talking about making sure... Um, policy and legislation is being upheld throughout the delivery of public services. And uh, I, I, I've been a chair of SEB, and um, that, that experience was more so getting bombarded with lots and lots of papers, um, being advised by the chief executive officer rather than holding the chief executive officer to account for fulfilling the expectations of the state's employment board through those policies and legislation now we have a people strategy so that would kind of that's your kind of higher level saying well we have an expectation here and and this is where we want to drive it 
And and it would be totally and entirely appropriate for the CEO to turn around and say, well, you're not giving me sufficient funds to fix these health and safety problems or um, your priorities are not allowing me to take this. And, and so there is a risk that we could be breaking the law. This goes back to, you know, why would we have to have so many employment tribunals or why would we have to go to court so often for notices or things like which are more controversial, your kind of bullying and harassment. Um, they're very difficult cases to deal with, but I'm not expecting SEB to deal with directly with particular cases. They should be holding to account those who should be handling those cases and making sure that we're delivering the public service in in a way that we look after our employees in in a, in the best way we possibly can when we're not a poor island um and we do spend a lot of money and and it goes back to the public finances law we've got a responsibility for value for money and i, I do wonder and i think many people sit there and go well, actually, who's being held to account to make sure we're targeting that money in the right way? Um, and I go back to the fact that, you know, a politician can sign off a letter of instruction if they don't agree with the advice of the officer. And, and nine times out of ten, they'll take on board the officer's advice. I mean, no, no doubt about it, because that's why they're there. They, they've got knowledge, they've got experience, um, and that's why they're employed to do the jobs that they are. Um, politics can get messy. Uh, and, that, and that's the way politics is. But that there is that element of respect where, you know, that accountability in the governance framework, it isn't about a blame game. It isn't trying to catch somebody out. It's trying to say, well, how do we improve this? How do we make this better? We, we don't, as a public service, we should be turning around saying our target is zero amounts of time we're going to be in court this year. And, and here's the reasons why. So it's setting yourself targets and, and key performance indicators as a state's employment board to say, this is how and why we're going to do better. And so you, you mentioned earlier that the last thing you want is for the review to be cherry-picked in some way. But if it is uh, to be taken forward by someone, I mean, what's the top priority on there? You know, what's the one thing that you think has to be top of the agenda to get done? So I could say all of it, couldn't I, really? <laughs> um, but it's not, it's not reasonable um, to be able to do that in the time that we've got. Um, so top priority, I would say alignment of ministers. I would say um, I think the State Assembly needs to decide whether uh, we bring in the ability to have a slate of ministers instead of each minister being voted on separately. So I think we need to have that debate and decide on that before the election. I think that's only fair and right. Um, removing the single legal entity, like I say, it's a really simple thing, but it, actually it's really important because that came out really loud and clear. Um, in the engagement with people. Um, so I think th they're the kind of really two big top things. I would like to see... We're not going to be able to fundamentally change the State's Employment Board in a few weeks. Uh, and, and it's unfortunate that we got to the position of four years later, and I know everybody blames COVID, but this was on the books in 2018. This was on the books when P1 was coming through. So it's always been sitting in the background as something that has to be done. And a CNAG report where recommendations have been accepted to improve the system. And I think sometimes when recommendations are accepted, it's easy to do the easy ones first or the ones where you don't have to go near the politicians in order to get them done. But then that's the politician's responsibility to pick them up and say, well, actually, we need to get these done. And so I think 
What we can do is make some amendments to the way that I refer to the HR law, um, some slight amendments there to make clarity around things like the CEO, clarity around the function of the SEB and, and what it does and what it means. Um, and actually, maybe it's constitution, because I think that would make a huge difference if it's not expected that the chief minister is the head of that that board, it's actually a non-exec board with a fair cross-cutting of politicians, but actually advisors from different walks of life that can help with that because it's an extremely important role that they play. And so I think I think taking that that in in connection, um, and I think there has to be a discussion around what the cabinet minister, if we have a cabinet office, whether we could get a cabinet office in place. Um, we've kind of got the bones of a cabinet office there. We've got the S Triple P, and we've got the ministerial support unit there um, and we've got comms and you know we've got all these other bits and pieces that don't have a, a kind of a direct formulated minister directly in line everyone assumes it's the chief minister and that that that's fair I mean legislation that comes forward in, in the chief minister's name for those particular areas is it's usually him but there is no longer a chief minister's department um, and so having even if we kind of took the next step and said maybe we have a cabinet minister whose responsibility is to look at the cross-cutting coordinating strategy kind of 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 the way that the um, council ministers can interact with policy and legislation but more importantly could be the head of that that state's employment board could be the person that kind of sits at the council of ministers and go well hang on a minute minister why are you doing this all on your own and not taking into account these bits and pieces um and it's that kind of support mechanism for the council of ministers but political to make sure there is that cross-cutting that coordination um but also having that direct line of accountability for those things that are just assumed or presumed at the moment even though it's not really clear (laughs) to what extent do you think some of these improvements might help sort of the important issue of recruitment and retention at the very top levels i mean we've churned through chief executives as you alluded to earlier we've had many hr directors could some of this actually help create some stability at the very top layers of government i think it needs to i think we need to have a period of stability considering what we we've seen over the last few years and i think the concern is is we don't have a a structure like westminster has um in terms of you know politicians can choose their their chief secretaries their their private secretaries and and work with them to drive things through we, we don't have that structure here and you have to work with the people that are there but that's where it's really important to set down your expectations and your vision and your values and and how that's going to work right at the beginning so that everybody knows where their their starting point is and and how they're going to work with each other over that period of time but having some of these changes like the state's employment board like having a cabinet minister like that ministerial alignment is is not just about political accountability and governance it's about the ability to rightly protect employees as well and whether they're the chief executive officer or some other senior officer they're still our employees and we need to recognize that politicians make decisions um whether they're the right ones you know we we can all argue on those bits and pieces and and we need to be working in harmony not against each other and so there there has to be that element of professionalism when you're you're dealing with um employees and and the way that you work with those employees but there also has to be frameworks and there also has to be lines of accountability in place if that relationship breaks down 
I don't think that's clear at the moment. And I think if we can fix that, I think it will help to smooth some form of stability over the years and give a clearer indication to the public who is actually responsible instead of trying to shift blame. I think sometimes it's too easy to shift blame around the place. And I think we need to make it absolutely clear um, the accountability mechanism that's in place for the public. So this review um, is, I guess, your final big piece of work, the, the you know, massive kind of, uh, I guess, the pinnacle, <laughs> your parting shot. What next for Tracy Valois? <laughs> um, so other than uh, working ridiculous hours to try and get this proposition through um, and working on six different committees at the moment, I think... For me, it's going to be a bit of a quiet time when it comes up to the election. Um, we've got a few sittings left. The island plan is going to be, yeah, one of those. I was in the last island plan. It was a bit much. Um, but we'll see how that goes. Yeah. More than 100 um, amendments. Oh, okay. Um, you know, sometimes you kind of sit there and you, you think to yourself, you know, I'm really grateful for having the opportunity to do this job. But when things like that come up, you're sitting there going, oh, oh dear. Um, and you need to be on the ball you really need to be on the ball with some of these things so um, the the next step for me looking for another job you know training and development for me I, I you know I've lost the opportunity to do training and development doing this job you know when I first came in there was no offering of an induction or training or anything like that and like I say we're not technically employed as members but I've learned so much and I think that's given me not just the confidence but a better understanding of my capabilities and my abilities and and where I need to take that and what I can do that will make a difference and so I'm thinking about that path at the moment some days I sit there and go do you know what actually I'd be quite happy just to to just something really simple and not have to make any decisions (laughs) (laughs) after the last 14 years Um, but it'd just be nice to be as anonymous as I possibly can be in Jersey um, for a period of time for me it's you know after 14 years it'd be nice finally highlights lowlights and the biggest thing you will take away what, the whole time I've been on the whole 14 years oh my goodness okay so um there, there are a number of highlights uh, I mean like I say I think the 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 biggest thing for me when I self-reflect over the 14 years is you know sometimes you can sit there and get get frustrated and downtrodden that you have I done enough um could I have done this could I have done that but actually when you look back since 2008 to now 2022 the amount of stuff that has changed is actually phenomenal. I know we're all kind of downers and, and we kind of talk negatively quite a lot. You know, we never had a discrimination law when I came into the States. Our sexual offences law was already out of date when it was brought in and we've got a brand new one. Criminal procedures law, 150 years old. That was changed, you know. Um, freedom of information, we never had that before. So actually, there's been, long-term care is another one, you know. And there has been so much that has changed and I think has changed for the better I mean transparency with FOI I know it's challenging um, but we never had that before so imagine how challenging it would be without that now Um, so I think the highlights for me is actually I think we've come a long way since 2008 we can always do better you know but I I don't think sometimes people realize how far we have actually come the the lows for me were the frustration of of the job um, excuses uh, you know I, I'm not a fan of excuses the low lights you know losing a comptroller to general 
you know, without proper legislation or governance that sat around that, that that was a pretty low time as chair of PAC and going, <laughs> oh, um, but that comes back to that personality thing again, when you've got people that are willing to work together. Um, I've never known a piece of legislation to be done and drawn up within six months from scratch. And we managed to do that because the chief minister at the time worked with me as as head of uh, scrutiny so it just shows what can be done when people work together you can't do this on your own you've got to work as a team and you've got to play the ball not the player um and so i think what i take away is that i have um skills that i probably never would have realized i had if i hadn't done this job um and i think i've i've learned how to engage and and listen better than what I probably did before I came in Um, and actually listening is probably one of the most important things we can do as humans not just as politicians thank you Senator Valois that's the pod for this week we'll be back next week to disassemble some of Jersey's most important political stories But if you're after a further politics fix, you can find plenty more episodes from Express in all the usual pod places. Of course, for all the latest headlines, visit bailiwickexpress.com. Or tune in to Bailiwick Radio Hits and Classics on DAB for your hourly one-minute update. That's all from me, Fiona Potney, on the Politics Disassembled podcast. Have a good week.